Welcome to Rare Book School, our first June 2008 session. On the plans for this building, this room is labeled Supply Room. It was never intended for media, and that is one of the reasons why the ceiling is too low and there are too many pillars. Your chairs are on wheels. If you are behind a pillar, as regards the screen, now would be a good time to wheel yourself into a place where you can see the screen, because you have come a long way and you want to see the pictures. Our enterprising speaker this evening showed up with a copy of a magazine called Style, Antiques and Interiors, which, and this is uh, this month's issue, I think, summer 2008. It has a major, incredibly, it has a major article in it on designer bindings. And I arrived late this evening because I bought all the ones that Rare Book School did not have on Abe. No flies on us. It's our great pleasure to welcome back to this podium Steve Barry, who spoke entertainingly on his discoveries regarding the New Jersey Rastai engraver Samuel Dodd last year. But he does things with the internet that are so surprising, we invited them back because he's done it again. Steve Barry. Okay, thank you. Can everybody hear me? Yeah. And if I see somebody sneaking behind a pillar, I'll know why. <laughs> this is off too. Uh, again, thank, it's great to be back here. I'm going to talk about two things tonight, and I apologize for those who heard my talk last year because the first part is going to be much of what I talked about on Samuel Dodd last year. And, uh, but then I'm going to have some new material on John Feely, who some of you may have heard about through Sue Allen's course. Are we off here? I think I was holding it upside down. Okay, I want you to remember these uh, designs that have shown up in the corners. They'll show up later. Now, why Samuel Dodd? Most of you probably haven't heard about Samuel Dodd. I had heard just a little bit about him. Uh, the reason I got interested is I purchased a really beautiful album uh, that was done by John Riker of New York. He was a publisher and a bookbinder in the early 1830s. And he, he continued to publish books until about 1850. And this was an album that was internally dated, not on the title page, but in some of the poetry that was in the book is 1836. But the stunning thing was an embossed cathedral on the front cover. And uh, the cathedral was signed at the very base in tiny little letters, S. Dodd, New Jersey. And there's a blow-up of it. So I think you can see it at the base of a, of a nice cathedral design. So clearly you have a, a New Jersey uh, tool cutter uh, who's put his name on it, but virtually nobody had ever heard of this guy. So I thought made, I, I made a major discovery, and then I looked in Wolf's Bible on Embossed American Bindings, which is a great book. And unfortunately, of course, he shows this book in it, and it's, uh, uh, his copy is actually dated a year earlier, 1835. So... What does he say about uh, 
Samuel died. Well, not a whole lot because he didn't know a lot about it. Uh, he was of Bloomfield in Newark, New Jersey. Bloomfield's about three miles, a little farming community, three miles northwest of uh, Newark, New Jersey. And said he was an engraver from about 1820 to 1860. And uh, he got his information from Gross and Wallace, the Dictionary of Artists. Uh, and this album was the only known design by Dodd. And you think, well, if this guy did this one uh, beautiful embossed engraving, he must have done many others, but why didn't his name ever show up? So two years ago, Sue Allen asked me, she, she's working on a book on 19th century uh, engravers and bindings and publishers' bindings. She said, you know, Samuel Dodd received uh, silver medals for the best book binder stamps at three different fairs of the American Institutes, uh, 1848, 49, and 55. Again, he must have been pretty special, but what can you find out about him? And that's all I needed was a little challenge. So I started looking at the normal primary sources, uh, microfilm and microfish and city directories and the valuable spear directory. If you've not used that, it's an extremely valuable set of virtually every known American uh, city directory before 1860 all on fiche, and many libraries have that as a reference. Uh, then looking at manufacturing census records, and these are less well-known. They're sometimes called the products of industry, but these are in which if you have a capital of $1,000 or more, you were recorded in the census manufacturing records, told how many employees you had, how many horsepower engines you had, how much raw materials you used, what your output was, so they can be very valuable. And then lastly, the population census records, which can be very valuable for, again, telling how much, when somebody started, how much their worth is, sometimes their family members. Uh, again, the other useful resources then are, are online databases. Uh, first of all, subscription databases. Uh, the one that is the most commonly used is from Ancestry.com, and that's the population census both in the UK and the US. And these are extremely valuable uh, for digging up very quickly census information that would take hundreds of hours to get at a microfilm. There's also America's Historical Newspapers. Again, many libraries subscribe to American Historical Newspapers, and these are uh, newspapers from the American Antiquarian Society that have been scanned in and read in so you have their fully word searchable. And then, of course, there are things like the New York Times and many, many others, but these are some of the more valuable ones. But then there's a lot of free resources, and I use free as much as possible. Uh, they're online searchable records, and, and the, the ones I use the most are the genealogy databases. One is Family Search, that's familysearch.org, that's the one from the Mormon Church, and it's a fantastic database. Uh, there's also RootsWeb. And both of these, though, have caveats because they're not normally sourced to primary materials. Quite often they'll have information on families, but not necessarily primary sources, but they can give useful leads and pointers as far as where to go. And then there are actually free online newspapers. The Brooklyn Daily Eagle is online from the beginning to about 1910, from about 1850 to 1910, fully word searchable. And uh, so that's, that's a useful one. Then there are a lot of city directories more and more appearing online 
and a good resource for that is Cindy's List, who's also a resource for genealogical websites. And then there's things as ordinary as Google and Google Books, and I'll give you an example of where, where that has been really valuable. Uh, in terms of census research tips, I tend to focus a lot on census, for, even for, for book research, and people probably wonder why. And the reason is you can find out so much about a person from the census records. And the fact that they're online and searchable, uh, it makes it a record that I, it's the first place I go. I record all the family members, and the reason for that is often, because of the way, that, the way it works, these are done in manuscript, uh, and what they do is they send the manuscript records to China where English-speaking Chinese transcribe and type into a database what they see. Well, they may not necessarily transcribe it correctly, so there's a lot of typos. And so when I, I go for first names of family members, because if I can't find somebody by the last name, I'll actually start searching by the first name of family members. And if I know the ages of them, it, often people will pop up just from the uh, first names. So it'll give you names, ages, occupations, uh, birthplaces, even neighbors can be helpful in tracking somebody down. I assume every citizen made the census, and if you make that assumption, if you can't find somebody in a particular decade, you just keep looking, and it may take eight hours, but eventually you'll find them. Uh, and then I use wildcard searches if I need to, if I have way too many hits. Uh, for example, if I'm searching for Samuel Dodd, if I type in Sam with an asterisk and a Dodd with an asterisk, a D-O-D with an asterisk, it'll give me anything, it'll truncate those, it'll give me anything Samuel, D-O-D, D-O-double-D. So that's helpful as well in terms of getting, getting people out. It's a highly iterative and creative process, so it doesn't come the first glance. You go over and over and over, and as you learn information, you just keep building and building and building, and, uh, and eventually you, you find what you're looking for. Now, the first thing I did on the Dodd family, after looking through the directories and finding his working dates and so were there, is I started looking at the Bloomfield Historical Society. The fact that he lived in Bloomfield I went there, and a fellow told me, he said, there's a genealogy on the Dodd family you should know about. And he sent me photocopies of the pages of interest for Samuel Dodd. And this was a resource that's been around since 1940. Uh, he was born in 1797 in Bloomfield. He died in 1862. So once you know that, then you can start looking at other primary sources. I found his obituary once I knew when he, when he uh, died. He was the oldest of nine children, and that told me something about, you know, why maybe he went into the business he went into. He was the oldest, and his father died when he was only 17. So it looked, everything kind of fell back to him. So in the initial search terms for Samuel Dodd, I, you know, I plugged in Samuel Dodd, born in New Jersey in 1797. And this is an example of what you come out with. This is a, just a copy of the uh, census record, but they're all in manuscript. This one's easy to read. Some are very difficult to read. Uh, but it says he's in Bloomfield Township uh, in the county of Essex, New Jersey. It gives the date the census was done, who actually conducted the census. And it gives the head of the household first, Samuel Dodd, his age, 53, he was an engraver. 
the value of his real estate, which was $2,400, which was appreciable in 1850, born in New Jersey, and then it goes on to list his wife and all his children, and at the very bottom is his mother. And his, his mother came in handy for something else later, but uh, I won't go into that today. Uh, and this, then I transcribe it in a form where I can put it in a, a Word document so I have all the information together. And uh, so that's just the names and, and so we're there. And I, use, I list the ages as well. Then if you look in the products of industry, which is not online, but it's on microfilm, and, and at least the library in our area has that, it tells, again, for Bloomfield, New Jersey, he, was, he had a capital of 1,000, which just put him into this record. He was an engraver. He used 400 pounds of brass in 1850, uh, 600 pounds of iron, 400 tons of coal. And information like this can be very useful. He had four male hands. It would be himself and his two sons. And then he had a, had a fourth uh, hand working for him, tolls the wages. And he sold $1,600. Not a whole lot, but enough to raise a family. It was this, Basically, it was a single-man business that he had. And it said he engraved ornaments and plates. So then after I got the census information, I got him through 1850 and 1860. And as, as I mentioned, he died in 1862. But I followed his family all the way up as far as I could. Then I did some Google mining. And I plugged in Samuel Dodd. turns out it's a very common name. If you plug in just Samuel Dodd, you'll get hundreds of thousands of hits. So I finally worked it down to Dodd Engraver. And out of that came an archive of, at Winterthur uh, that said there was a, a collection of the Dodd Brothers papers from 1860 to 1876. And of course, I knew he had two sons, uh, Samuel and William, that were in the early years were listed as engravers. Later, they went into real estate. I don't think they made, did very well in the engraving business. But I thought, that's really interesting. And then I found, it said, uh, in, their, in their description of the database, it said they were engravers from Newark, New Jersey. They succeeded S. Dodd and Son. And uh, what caught my eye was the design book features thousands of engraved images used in the Dodd's engraving business. So it implied they had a design book that was engraved, which would have been printed, uh, used in the Dodd's. And I thought, well, you know, it's not Samuel Dodd, but it's the Dodd family. Maybe there's some engravings here that will tell me something about the father. And uh, so I went out to Winterthur, which is only 10 minutes from me, and they pulled the book out, and at the instant I saw it, I knew it was Samuel Dodd's and not his son's. And how did I know that? You did, well, if you've seen enough books, you know when a book is 1860 or 1820 and 30. It's pre early paper, the paper, the stamp designs were early. There were two stamps for Bloomfield on the first page. The sons were born in Bloomfield but never worked there. There were then two stamps in the book that looked very familiar. It had 144 individual pages in the book, and these were all glued to muslin so that you could actually open the book and protect the book. Uh, and it was bound in just a servable, serviceable suede, nothing fancy. And it was very grubby from use in a, in a work environment. There were a total of 2,500 stamps in the book. And uh, what Dodd did is, as he made a stamp, he would hold it in a sooty candle flame, stamp it in the book with a carbon from the uh, flame, 
and that would form his impression. And he had ruled one-inch squares throughout the book, and he just put these in the book, and then he put a number for the stamp, and then at the end he had a price list from one to 2,500 as he made the stamps. And uh, the price uh, total added up to $4,500, which wasn't actually a lot of money for, for let's say, 40 years' work, but it was, it was appreciable. This is the first two pages of the book. And this is before he started numbering. On, on page three, he started doing his numbering. And this is exactly how they appear in the book. Things were kind of, you know, just stamped in where they, where they fit. He had gouges on the right. Every, every binder would have needed a set of those. So that's something he would have made many, many sets on. And everything is priced, how much it cost. And on the left are various stamps. And then I'll just flip through the book. There's some beautiful layers in the book. These incidentally, these layers are three inches tall, so they're huge. They're plaques, which would have been a, a sheet of brass, which would have been not hand-stamped, but stamped in a press. Everything else, the smaller ones, would have been hand-stamped. And uh, beautiful corner design up in the left-hand corner and, and other, other stamps here. And then this is the first page of the list of the, the prices of the stamps, and it just goes on and on with all the different stamps. And I'll just flip through. This is just an example of a few pages out of the book to show how ornate some of these stamps were. And you think, this is one tool cutter, and there were probably you know scores of tool cutters in this country at the time. And each might have had an album like this. Layers were very popular at the time. And it was obvious he was skilled. He knew what he was doing. These were all being cut and filed out of brass. He has different people he did it for as well. Obviously, some advertising. Entire backs of books. So this would be for an entire book cover. And let's go back now to this, this corner stamp. See, that stamp looked familiar when I saw the book. So I went up to Winniture's reference library. And I got their copy of uh, Wolf's From Gothic Windows to Peacocks, and sure enough, that corner stamp was the same one as on the album that showed up in Wolf, the one where Dodd signed the, signed the uh, design in the middle. So when I saw that, when I saw that the binder had used the same stamp in the corners as was on the Dodd signed stamp, it seemed to me that's most likely it was Dodd's uh, stamp in the corner as well. I happen to have that, well, I had the copy of the book at home, so when I brought it home, here's a comparison of the corner, and you can see it's the same stamp. So then if you go back to the first page, I said, well, maybe he, I assume he put these in chronologically, but here's the test. So I'll test out on the first page. Here's the Boston Athenaeum, a couple of stamps there, and then a similar stamp for B. Olds Library. And he misspelled Athenaeum, so he would have had to recut this. But uh, it's what it looks like, octavo and duodecimo, so he had two stamps or two different sizes of books, probably to stamp the spines of the books. Well, I wrote Stanley Cushing of the Boston uh, Athenaeum, and he said, sure enough, yeah, we use that stamp at the Boston Athenaeum. I can't tell you the specific dates, but he sent me an example where they had basically defaced engravings so nobody would steal the engraving out of the book. They used a red ink and basically smeared it on the stamp and they would actually stamp the, uh, the version. But 
This is just showing the Boston Athenaeum stamp out of one of the uh, plates of the book and one in the stamp album there, and you can see the similarities, again, with the uh, corrected uh, spelling. He probably recut the whole stamp rather than just the uh, letters. Well, then how about B. Olds? Well, that's Benjamin Olds. He was a Newark bookseller slash bookbinder starting in the 1820s. Uh, Joe Falcone was able to locate a copy from Old Circulating Library with the old stamp right on the title page, dated 1827. So that's, the, that's a comparison there. It's the same stamp. Again, it wasn't probably intended for that purpose, but he again just put it like in a stamp pad and stamped the uh, title page of the book so that it would show ownership there. So I feel confident page one is somewhere around 1827, so I had that one pretty well pegged. Then there were two uh, liars in, these three-inch tall liars in the book that looked very familiar. It turned out one of them I owned. I had two albums done by John Riker in New York, eight, both dated 1833 on the title page, which is helpful. But many of Riker albums are undated, and these happen to be dated. And it's the same, uh, I call it the winged liar. And there's a comparison out of the Dodd book and on the Riker album. And that early uh, album that, that Dodd had signed was also a Riker album, so I'm going to guess that Riker used quite a few of Dodd's stamps. Well, how about the one on the left? I call that the flaming liar. You can see from its stamp number, it was number 539, the winged liar was 561. If he did these chronologically, it ought to be somewhere in the early 1830s. And I looked all over it, major collections of albums, and nobody could come up with the flaming liar on the left. So I showed the pattern book to Wilman Spawn, and the next day he called me and he says, we've got an example in our library at Bryn Mawr. And sure enough, it's, uh, it was 1843, way too late but it was the, it's the right stamp, published in Utica in 1843. Uh, I'm still looking for an 1830, early 1830 stamp because I knew it had to have been used earlier than that. Well, I got two more years on it. Sue Allen, last year when she was preparing for her course, had been using this stamp for years and had forgotten until I reminded her about that I was still looking for the stamp and she was going through her slides prior to her course last year, and she excitedly called me. She said, I found your liar. And it was on a Utica imprint from 1841. Same publisher as the one in 1843. So it's, we're backed up two years. <laughs> and here that's the comparison between the Dodd pattern book and the uh, Utica stamp. Well, just two months ago, I got a note from Elizabeth Baird, who's an ephemera dealer from Maine, and uh, she found me the stamp on an 1830 album. I couldn't believe it. And she sent it to me on consignment and uh, let me take pictures of it. And that's the New York 1830 album. It's, it's dated 1830 on the title page with no publisher listed. It could have been Riker. It could have been other people. But I suspect it was Riker. But I finally tracked that one down. So that was very satisfying. Uh, here's a, a direct comparison to show you the 1830 album, the size of it, and that's the right size for a huge stamp like this, and then <laughs> years later, this stamp was probably resold at some point, and, and this Utica binder used it for a few years. Uh, so in 1841, the book's smaller, 
And then finally, 43, it's a small book, and the liar looks totally out of place on that, that uh, little book there. Well, another one here looks fairly easy. I, the, the modern horse doctor sure looks like a spine stamp. So I, again, you know, went on Google, looked on World Cat, and sure enough, there's Dr. Dad's modern horse doctor, Boston, published by Jewett in 1856. Oops, and there's, there's a direct comparison of the spine stamps. So again, that pegs another date pretty certainly on that particular page. Here's another example on the left. It's a, it's a fairly elaborate stamp. Sue Allen found it for me on a book, 1856, as a blind stamp on the front cover. And uh, another example, 1856. And again, this is a little more elaborate in Dodd's book, but I'm sure he did both stamps as well, because bear in mind, if he did one stamp, he could do any number of stamps since he had now had a stamp album. If somebody wanted to come to his shop in Bloomfield and say, I want another stamp just like this, he could give them a price and, uh, and know exactly what it looked like. I mean, we just take it for granted today to be able to make a photocopy of something. But you can imagine here, this was another way to make a copy. Well, my background is a scientist, so I had to make a plot. The few data points I had, I just did a scatter plot. And I said that it's starting around 1827, maybe a little bit earlier, in this album. The last one was 1862, when he died. Uh, it's pretty linear. He did roughly 70 stamps a year. And uh, so it, it gives you a feel that, yeah, he did this chronologically. It's a reasonably good fit. So how about more about Samuel Dodd? I'd started looking through city directories. I found his first ad in 1848. And it's the most unique ad I've seen like this. Uh, if you look at it, he has all these vignettes going around the outside. At the top it says book binders, tools, rolls, stamps, scrolls. And with each vignette, he shows the actual use of it, like rolls, stamps, scrolls at the bottom. On the right, he did saddlery tools. So all of a sudden, you see, he's not just doing book uh, stamps. He's doing any stamp for any application, uh, embossing rolls and so were there. This is an example of a Dodd roll. I chased this one all over Pennsylvania to be able to finally track it down. But that's, that's one example I have of a roll. See, he didn't just do the hand stamps. He did hundreds of rolls. He would have made a pattern book of the rolls as well, but it's, it's gone. It's lost. Um, at the bottom of that ad, you have he did trunk maker stamps. He did hatters, stamps for hatters inside the hat bands. They'd have silk hat bands. They'd always have a gold stamp. So he did those as well. And, and uh, Newark, New Jersey was a major industry for hatters. Uh, sides, backs, lines. Uh, then he has a set of gouges on the lower left. If you look in the middle right, he, show, he talks about bell plates and door plates. If you look carefully, you see he has S. Dodd. I thought that was a nice touch on the bell plate. He has uh, his own name. Uh, then in one ad in 1851, he has a similar ad for several years, but he changes the text. And he, he says, I'm a few rods from the Turnpike Road leading from Newark to Bloomfield, New Jersey. And uh, so that gives you a hint. So I went to an Essex County uh, property map from 1850, and sure enough, if you look up the Bloomfield Turnpike, you've got S. Dodd right here. 
and that was his house. Now I've I've gone to that spot and it's gone, but you know it's it was there. Then I traipsed around the the Bloomfield Presbyterian Cemetery uh, for about two hours in the rain. I finally found they didn't have his his gravestones marked well in the uh, office, and I was finally able to find his plot. Very simple family plot: his father, mother. Him, his wife, and then two daughters are all buried there. But uh, that's Samuel Dodd, and so we've kind of captured him from the beginning to the end of his life. So what I'm going to do is switch gears now and talk about John Feely, who's much better documented, but about whom we know very little about in terms of where he was born, when he died, where he lived uh, later in life. Uh, Sue Allen discovered him. I talked to her yesterday. I said, Sue... When did you actually discover John Feely? And she says, I think it was 1973. And that sounds about right. Uh, Right now, there's over 300 different signed titles. When she published her book about 1997, she had 109 examples. But her students have been gathering more and more samples every year. It's harder and harder to find a new example, but now there's about three times the number of when she published her book. The earliest is in London, of all places, in 1842, and there are three signed examples, all from a Shakespeare set. And then the earliest U.S. is New York, 1847, of which there are two examples so far. And then the latest is New York, 1877, and there's one example. So, you know, you say, well, he probably died around 1877. And so you go to the directories, And the date Sue gives is 1819 to 78, but kind of questionable because we've never seen any good documentation on either date. He falls out of the New York directories. His last appearance is 1877, and and the natural assumption is he died, and that's why he disappeared. But normally when you die in a city directory, if your wife's still living, the next year or two or three years, the wife is listed as a widow. And Elizabeth, was his wife, never came up in the directories. He was in the Brooklyn directories till 76. And again, his wife never appeared. His son did. His son was, became a medical doctor and was a very important doctor in Brooklyn. Uh, and I, Sue looked very hard for many years. I've looked hundreds of hours probably trying to find his death notice and uh, more about him and, and never found anything. So you you go to online searches, and here's one of the frustrations, I guess, of Google, is there's so much stuff now. If you just type in John Feely, there's almost a million hits. Well, you can't go through those. If you put it in quotes, that brings it down to 6,000, but that's still too many to deal with. Then there are Feely name variants. Often Feely was spelled F-E-E-L-E-Y by whoever wanted to spell it that way. And there's a half million of those. So you've got to find some way to target these searches. So if you go to online searches, you have the same problem. These are all different ways I found John Feely's last name spelled. Uh, Feli, Freely, Feeney, Jeannie, and I think there's a last one that I'll show you later. So, but if you do go on the online searches, you can sort out. You find them in 1850, 60, and 70. And Sue was able to find the hard way, which takes hours and hours going through microfilms of Brooklyn, 
found them in 1850 and 1870. Uh, I, I've been totally unable to find him in the 1880 census, and again, the assumption was he died. Uh, but I had actually visions of maybe going back to Ireland or England or whatever. I thought, he can't just have disappeared. Well, this is a typical example of what it looks like in the uh, Brooklyn census for 1850. You see John Feely, age 29, engraver. His real estate was worth $1,000. Uh, he was born in Ireland. His wife Elizabeth was born in England. His son uh, James... Uh, is four years old, was born in England. So that's useful to know. He has a son, Patrick, uh, who's uh, four years old. Uh, sorry, James is six years old. Patrick is four years old, born in New York. So that tells you something about when he might have come to New York. Uh, living, then sharing a house with a mariner named Jacob Wandel. Who do you see down here but Anne, a brothel keeper? Well, when I saw this, I called Sue and I said, Sue, did you know? She says, yeah, but I didn't want to say it. <laughs> She's so proper. But when she saw the original, she, she couldn't quite believe it. But, but John was living with, in a brothel, basically. And, uh, I mean, it, that happened. So. so then I traced him back to England, at least. So we knew he, he lived in England for a while. I was able to find him in the England 1841 census. Their censuses are always on the, you know, one year after the decade, 41, 51, 61, so we're there. And just happened to find him living with a family in the Salisbury Square. Uh, and actually, if you look at the occupations, uh, the guy was, one guy was a printer, one was a book binder. He was right, right near Fleet Street. He was in the heart of the book area in, uh, in London. Age 25, uh, engraver, and the I stands for Ireland. He was born in Ireland. And uh, actually, I visited there recently, and, and Salisbury Square is still there, but I think it, it's basically three walls of buildings, of which one is original and the rest are all modern blocks. But number 19 is no longer there. But this is just off Fleet Street, and here's an example. It's, it's, it's a really interesting area, just... This little black area up here is Samuel Johnson's house, so it's, a, it's just got full of history there. But that's where he was in 1841, and he must have worked somewhere in this area. So then I started playing around with his son's name, James Fitzgerald Feely, family search, again the Mormon site, free site, told me he was born April 12, 1844. I mean, unbelievable information baptized in May 1844 at Old Church St. Pancras, London. Parents, John and Elizabeth Field, well, I knew this had to be our family. So I googled the Old Church St. Pancras, and I found the rector's email address. I emailed him, and I said, I'd love to know more about it. Do you have any more information? He said, all our records are with the Metropolitan Archives. I emailed them, sent them a $15 fee, I gave them all the information they needed, and I got a photocopy of his baptismal record. And the beauty of this is it gives even more information than I got on the family search. James Fitzgerald is down here. He was born on the 5th of May to John and Elizabeth. They lived on Johnson Street, which is something I didn't know. This was in 1844. John was listed as an engraver, so I know I have the right guy. And uh, tells when he was actually christened. 
So if you look at it, and again, I want to mention a free resource, maparchive.com, has beautiful detailed maps of uh, London and other areas as well that you can download, no charge. Uh, if you look, Old Church is the upper right-hand corner. That's the St. Pancras Old Church. Uh, Johnson Street is probably a three-minute walk away, and it, it's logical. Then they lived at Johnson. They went to this church. Um, if The lower right-hand corner is the present location of uh, St. Pancras uh, uh, Railway Station. And my wife and I were there just recently, so we found St. Pancras Old Church. It's still there and uh, took pictures of it. It's nice to know John Feely was in this church at one time with his son. So how about his time in London? My son was in London for a while, and uh, I asked him to go through the city directories, and he spent many hours going through the city directories of London and could find only one uh, mention of John Feely. In 1845, he was mentioned as a bookbinder's tool cutter, and said, see Horan Feely. So you go to Horan Feely, and that's a bookbinder's tool cutter. So he was a junior partner of, of Daniel Hoare, who actually was in business for quite a few years after that. He started in 1844. He was in Holborn and uh, moved to Hatton Garden, again, a, a, a place a lot of other, a lot of bookbinders were. So, but that's the only mention of John Feely in the city directories, which is quite remarkable. So he knew he was at least there through 1845. So we come back now to Ancestry.com. I found his manifest in which he and his family came here. They arrived September 1st, 1845 from London. It turns out that ship made a regular uh, crossing to and from England, uh, left from St. Catherine's Dock. And this is an example of what you get out of a ship manifest. You've got John Feely, his wife Elizabeth, son James, uh, Charlotte Feely, who I don't think was a relative, she was listed as a maid, and I think it was, I have not been able to find a, a, a Charlotte Feely, but you always keep this information in mind because you never know when she'll uh, turn up. Well, that's, that's the day they came in, 1845. Uh, so then you jump up to 1860, and you find that, uh, again, in 1860, he was listed as an engraver. He's, his real estate is now $14,000, so he's doing very well. That was a tremendous amount of real estate in 1860. And uh, his wife Elizabeth, James F., uh, Patrick now, H., Patrick H. was born in New York, that we saw something about him in uh, 1850. Michael now, that's a new Michael Feely. Turned out that was his nephew, and I followed him through. He was listed as an engraver's apprentice, of course, working for John, and uh, he became an engraver of his own right and then partnered with a fellow named Wagonfor. There was Wagonfor and Feely for a while. So, you know, these people all connect. But then you go, you say, well, keep searching for this guy, Feely. I mean, I've, I've been pretty obsessed with it, and I could not find John. 1880 or later. Couldn't find Elizabeth in 1880, but I found her in 1900. <clears throat> Couldn't find Patrick ever after 1870. 1870 or later. He just disappeared. And uh, I, could, I could find James easily, the, the son that became the medical doctor, and then the wife. So then I found the, James Feely's death notice. Again, free resource, the resource Brooklyn Daily Eagle, 
what was interesting is when he died, he died in 1899, he survived by his mother, so I knew Elizabeth was still alive, a brother, Patrick, who I couldn't ever find again, and a grown son, and I followed William through. And uh, then his obituary the next day says he was going to be interred in English Town, New Jersey. I'm thinking, why if he lives in Brooklyn all his life would he go to English Town? But I never could see any connection with English Town. Uh, Elizabeth Feely, I found her obituary. I've never been able to find John's. She died in 1901 in the 80th year of her age. Funeral services at, at her home that they always lived at and her son had lived at as well. Um, so then I, the breakthrough came just in April this year. And this is where you have to keep searching and researching over and over again because Google gets richer and richer every day. You, you, you just can't search one day and think you found everything. So I'd say if you're searching diligently every three to four months, that's probably a good frequency to treat. keep trying. When I searched for Elizabeth Feely, number two of 658 hits for in Google Books alone, I found The History of the Old Tenant Church by Frank Sims, published in 1904. I mean, a book I never would have given a second glance to. Uh, I found the names Elizabeth Feely, Widow of John. And I looked at that, well, I thought, that's, that was what I actually saw on the, on the computer screen. This is what came up from the scan. So you've got Elizabeth Feely, widow of John. She was buried June 12, 1901. Well, I knew that from her obituary, so I knew it was the right Elizabeth. So then I started going through. These were all chronological, and I knew when James died, and sure enough, James popped up. They misspelled his name, but he pops up in the list of, of uh, funerals or burials. And uh, then, I, then it occurred to me, Elizabeth Town's three miles from Old Tenant Cemetery, so that's what they meant. He went to Old Tenant Cemetery. Old Tenant Cemetery was in basically a rural farming community, and there's no city right near there. But the closest city was, uh, was <coughs> English Town. So I went back to Feely in this list of uh, burials, and he wasn't in the 1870s. I, th I thought he'd pop up 1877, 78, 79. I went through the 1880s, the 1890s, and here he pops up, 1893. He had been living in New Jersey since he left in New York and died. He lived 15 years longer than we all gave him credit for. And the beauty is it told when he was born, which we didn't know. He was born July 4th, 1816. And this all came from an online book that wasn't there probably six months ago. And this is a title page of the book. And look look at what it says at the, at the please return to Alderman Library. This is one of the books that was scanned by Google from Alderman's collection. So, I mean, it, what a... And the last time it was checked out was 1995, so it wasn't a real popular book here. But, I mean, there's so much valuable information on the Internet. It, I, who would have ever in their you know, right mind looked at this book or looked in central New Jersey? So I phoned the superintendent of this cemetery, which is connected in a way with an old Presbyterian church, but it's, it's a non-denominational cemetery, and... Uh, I talked to the superintendent, it was really helpful. He went through his records, 
And he told me, well, the day he died, not just the burial day, he died May 7th, he was buried May 10th. But he, then he told me, I said, well, who held the plot? It must have been his wife. And he went through, he said, no, it was Henry Feely. I said, Henry's a name I've never heard of. I know all the Feelys, but not Henry. So I started searching for Henry Feely, and it turned out Henry was a farmer in the 1870 census, real estate, I mean, you know, for a 24-year-old, he was pretty wealthy, $4,700, personal estate, 1100 He had a housekeeper, a farm laborer. Madison Township's only a few miles from the Tennant Cemetery. So here's, then I thought, Patrick H. It was Patrick Henry. He didn't like Patrick Henry. He changed his name to Henry after that. But it's the same guy. So then I looked at 1880. I found John, not through Feely, because they'd spelled it Furley. But I found him through the first names and knowing they must have lived in Madison. So here he's a farmer now, born Ireland. It's the right guy. Elizabeth, born England. Henry, born New York, one farmhand. I mean, it, it just it all fits like a glove. And then I found a, uh, a large uh, state or census or a, a map for 1876 for the entire Madison Township. And the beautiful thing is, this is really a farming community. There were no cities at all in this township. Uh, but it listed every farm holder. So it wasn't a big problem because there aren't that many farms on it. Here's John Feely's farm right here. Uh, this is, uh, you know, just, it's right there. Now this is 1876 when he was still living in Brooklyn. So clearly he bought the farm for his son to live on until he could retire. His son was living there since at least 1870. Actually, this didn't become a township by the name of Madison until uh, 1869. I've, I'm still trying to locate the original deed of sale, but my guess is it was the, in the 1860s. So he knew for some period of time he was going to retire to this farm in central New Jersey, you know, hang up all his, his engraving tools and so forth and, go, and become a farmer. Uh, he was probably raised in a farming community in Ireland, and uh, so it was nice to finally get find out where he wound up living. So I visited there in April. I mean, it was actually a thrill to drive up. I imagined something like this. I mean, that was the, the Dodd uh, tombstones there. Here's what I saw. You know, I drove, I was probably two or three hundred feet away, and I saw a feeling, you know, on his books, they're microscopic letters. <laughs> so this is great to see the, the size, and it, it is, you know, this granite that is lasts forever. It looks like brand new stone. And uh, this is a close-up. And the beautiful thing about this, it tells the birth date, when he died, his wife, how old she was when she died. On the left side, it shows James Feely, uh, MD, born in, the date he was born in London, uh, when he died, everything's there that you could hope for. The right side is blank. And I asked Ed Burke, the cemetery superintendent, I said, Ed, I said, There's, Henry should have been buried here. He says he is. I said, what do you mean? His name's not. He said, that's not unusual not to, you know, to have a name not on the stone. I said, well, how do you know he's here? He says, well, there's four plots here. I says, how do you know that? He says, you know, after you've seen a lot of plots for, you know, 30 years, they settle. 
And I can tell you there's four plots here. We, if we probe this, we'd find Henry down there. So that was good enough for me. So here's where Feely finally meets Dodd in central New Jersey, the most unlikely place in the world. You have Dodd up in, uh, in Bloomfield, New Jersey. Uh, the Feely Farm uh, down in Middlesex County, New Jersey, and then right across the boundary in Monmouth County, you have Old Tennis Cemetery. Uh, and Feely himself, of course, worked way up in, in uh, New York and then uh, Brooklyn, but that stone's been there since he died in 1893. It could have been there another thousand years without anybody seeing it that it meant anything to it without, with the exception that Google Books allowed one to kind of pull it out. So you know, I would just urge you as you're doing your research, you know, just to, to use every resource you have, not just the hard copies, but use the internet as much as possible. And I'd like to just make some acknowledgments to Alan, who started all of this, really. Bruce Bazelon, he's the one that donated the archive uh, to uh, Winterthur, and that really preserved it. But it did, that was in 76, so it laid there for uh, basically 30 years until it kind of came to light. Uh, Tom Conroy, who's, who's written the Bible on bookbinders, uh, finishing toolmakers, and then a whole bunch of people that have, have opened up their resources and book dealers who, who shared information with me. Uh, they're just a host of people here, so it's uh, it's been a lot of fun. Great. Thank you.